turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at a a beautiful passage today as we consider uh, the issue of worship. And I'll explain uh, in large part why we've moved things around a bit and why we've... uh, what our focus will be really for the next seven months as we get into a new series on the doctrine of worship today. Uh, But as you're turning there, let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek His favor upon us today. Heavenly Father, You are the giver of life and You have spoken and caused all things that we know to come to be. Uh, Lord, You spoke into the darkness and created this world. And you have spoken into our hearts by the truth of the gospel and created in us new life and salvation. Father, we who are your people today come here today to hear from you. We do not come to hear from Nathan Skipper, but to hear from your word. So, Father, I pray that you would remove me from the situation as far as it is possible and that what these people see today might be Christ and Him crucified. And that through the uplifting of Jesus Christ, that we all might be transformed from one degree of glory into another, into the image of Your Son. Father, I pray that You would open our ears, that we might hear the truth of Your Gospel, and that You would uh, unshade our eyes, that we might see and know and behold Your glory. Father, I pray that you would do you would cause all these things to come together for our good and for your glory and that each thing that is done today might be for your glory and honor. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, I know I can imagine I'm not exactly in your shoes. I'm actually on the opposite end of the spectrum as it comes to today and to the beginning of my ministry here at Antioch West. But I can imagine that you have had a mixture of emotions lately. I saw it last week as we celebrated Brother Watson's 54 years of ministry here and his last sermon uh, officially as the pastor here. I doubt very seriously it will be his last sermon here, but his last sermon as the pastor of this church. And uh, I imagine, and I have seen on your faces, maybe a sense of sadness as you uh, recognize that Brother Watson won't be filling this pulpit every Sunday. But I also sense a, a sense of excitement as you know that there's a new chapter, a new phase coming to the life of this church. And I have received many well wishes and expectations and happiness and joy that uh, and excitement over what might Becoming what the Lord might be doing in our midst as we begin this new phase of the journey and the ministry of this church in this community. You know, Brother Watson certainly has set a, a high bar for me in 54 years of faithful ministry, and, and uh, he set a high bar for any pastor in serving for that length of time. And I'm willing to bet that you've become accustomed to everything about him, his mannerisms, his, uh, the way he does certain things. And I'm willing to bet, I, I, I know with all confidence, he knows you all very well and knows your, your kids, your grandkids. Like many of you said, he married some of you. He, he's done funerals for your family. He's done everything that every major life event, event he's been a part of. 
And now, while I knew some of you beforehand, I'm willing to say that most of you I don't know, and most of you don't know me, at least on a personal level. But don't worry, though. We have 50 years to get to know each other, and so we can, uh, we, we've got some time. But in that, if I'm going to make it 54 years, I'm going to need your help. So as I start my ministry here, I want to make two promises to you. First, I promise to be patient with you as you're patient with me. I, I will say, first of all, that I'm... I don't know all of you, and I don't know all of your names, and I will likely forget your name at some point in the next few months. In fact, if you want to go ahead and make a practice of introducing yourself every time you speak to me, it might help me get to know you a little quicker. So if I don't, I was joking with Troy earlier, if I say, hey man, it might mean that I don't remember your name. Um, but uh, or hey, sister, maybe I should say that to the women. But if I if I struggle to know your name, please be patient with me. Please don't uh, get get angry if I don't know your uncle that everybody else in the in the in the community knows. You know, be patient with me as I am patient with you. And I I can say that there will likely be some things that frustrate you about me as we get to know each other. And I can promise you there will be some things about you that frustrate me. Right, Brother Watson? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, but, we, but we need to show each other Christian love and respect as we seek to glorify Christ in this community. And so it means that we bear with one another in our failings and in our difficulties getting to know one another. The second thing that I promise you, and more importantly than that, is that my primary mission at this church is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you in everything that I do, whether it be from this pulpit or whether it be in visiting you in in your time of need or just visiting you on a Sunday afternoon or whether it be in the work that we do in the community. Everything that I do will be for the purpose of glorifying Christ and preaching the gospel to you and to this community. Um. I believe that my chief responsibility as a pastor is to preach the gospel, to preach the word of God. And everything else that I do will flow out of that. Even if it's caring for you on a hospital bed, it will be for the purpose of ensuring that you know your Lord and Savior and know that he is with you even in that. And so to that end, I thought that... uh, Uh, I've been thinking through what I should preach for my first series here at Antioch, and the Lord kept bringing me back to the topic of worship. It's something that uh, over the last 10 months, really, I've wrestled with, and I've wrestled with the question of the essential nature of the church. I've wrestled with that because the COVID-19 pandemic has caused us to rethink everything, We have what they call the new normal now, which if this is the new normal, I hope we come to a new, new normal at some point and figure something else out. But we've got a new normal when it comes to school. We've got a new normal when it comes to work. We've got a new normal when it comes to everything. And the church has not been left out of that. During the lockdowns of March and April, particularly, there was much debate over how to categorize the nature of the church. 
The question was typically put to us in this way. Is it is church essential or is it non-essential? Right. Everything in your life got categorized by that dichotomy, essential or non-essential. And we could not figure out where the church the, the meeting of God's people or our efforts in Sunday school and evangelism and all that, where that fit in this dichotomy between essential and not essential. Should we stop caring for people? Should we stop discipling one another? Should we stop worshiping together? How do we understand the church in light of this pandemic? Now, church leaders landed on all sorts of places when it came to this question, all over the place. But in thinking through all of this, it became very clear to me that the regular faithful worship of the church is essential. In fact, I believe that the worship of the church is the essence of what a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is. I'm not real big on mission statements. I've, I've never really cared for that in my work and I've never cared for it in the church. But as I thought through this, I came up with sort of a mission statement that helps us to define what a true faithful church is. And so if you want to write this down, I'd encourage you to. If you're one of those that takes notes, uh, I'd encourage you to do that because um, this is something that I plan to come back to on a regular basis. And so if I were to have a mission statement for the church, not just this church, church, but any church, it would be this. A faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a body of baptized believers who delight in the triune God by discipling one another and devoting themselves to the work that he's commanded. I'll say that again for you. A faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a body of baptized believers who delight in the triune God by discipling one another and devoting themselves to the work that he's commanded. Now, if you notice, if you pay close attention to that statement, you'll notice that there are three pillars. First, a true church is one that delights in God. Worship should be the center of faith of a faithful church. Everything else that we do ought to flow out of our delight for the things of God. And as we delight in God, we disciple one another, not we disciple one another so that we might delight in God, but we delight in God. And through that delight, we disciple one another. And as we delight in God, We devote ourselves to his work. So oftentimes we get it the other way around. We say, well, I'm going to work and then maybe I'll find some delight in that work for the Lord at some point. But rather, it ought to be that our devotion to the Lord, our discipleship in the Lord ought to all be motivated by our delight for the Lord. So if delighting in the Lord, delighting in God is at the heart of what it is to be a faithful church, then there's no better place for me to start in my ministry here at Antioch West West, than with a sermon series on the doctrine of worship. So I thought that that would be a real quick four-week series that we would look at what worship is and, and all of that. 
And as I got to studying for it and planning it out, it turns out we're going to take the next seven months to look at the doctrine of worship. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'll see you in seven months uh, (laughs) after today. But uh, what I want to do is take a deep look at what worship is, who it is that we worship, why we worship, how we worship, where we worship, when we worship. And that involves that you'll see that that fingers out into everything that we do. Everything that we as a church do is in some way an act of worship. So to start, I need you to understand that worship is more than just what we do here on Sundays. Worship is more than the song service. Oftentimes we call our worship, we, we view our worship as div- our service as divided into worship, which we mean singing and the sermon. But really, everything that we do is worship. Worship isn't just a, a one item, one requirement in the list of things that we're expected to do as Christians. Worship is the very reason for which we were created And it's the very reason for which we have been saved. John MacArthur puts it this way. In the grand theme of redemption, one of the principal things God is doing is transforming sinners into worshipers. Now, a passage that relates that perfectly is the passage that I've asked you to turn to. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We'll spend the time that we have left looking at one key point that Paul brings out over and over again in this passage. So read along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. God's Word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory." So one of the things that we miss in our English language as we read that long passage is that Paul is making this beautiful proclamation. It's really a hymn. 
in these these verses, these 11 verses that we just read. And these 11 verses actually in the original language are all one long run on sentence. They don't have any periods, any exclamation points, nothing till you get to verse 14. So it's like Paul is just exuberantly proclaiming the joy that he has in the Lord for all the blessings that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And this one long sentence is divided into three sections. You might have noticed that as you were reading through it, but if you pay attention as you read through it again, you'll notice that there are three sections and each section deals with the work that one member of the Trinity has done for our salvation. So Paul focuses on the work that God the Father has done for us, and then the work that God the Son has done for us, and then finally the work that God the Holy Spirit does for us in our salvation. And there are three points that I want you to notice today as we look at this passage real briefly. And they are first, the foundation of praise. Secondly, the faithful service of praise. And third, the future reality of praise. The foundation of praise, the faithful service of praise, and the future reality of praise. So first, let's consider the foundation of praise in verses 3 through 6. Paul begins by telling us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Jesus Christ. Then he starts to list out those blessings, and he starts by listing All the ways that God the Father, before the foundation of the world, was involved in our salvation. Now there are two phrases that Paul uses here to describe the work that God the Father has done for us in our salvation. First, Paul says that God the Father chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now that phrase, chose us, means to set apart or to pick out. In other words, get this, Christian, before the world began, God knew you, He purposed you, and He planned to save you. The second phrase that He uses is predestined to adoption. Just as God knew you and set you apart, God also determined beforehand, which is what the word predestined means, He determined beforehand that He would adopt you into His family through Jesus Christ. But why? Why did God the Father make a plan for you and set out to save you and purpose to make you a part of His family before the world ever began? Paul gives us the answer at the end of verse 6. You'll notice he uses this phrase, to the praise of His glorious grace. God the Father purposed your salvation before the world began so that you might be a testimony of praise to His glorious grace. Understand, brothers and sisters, God didn't save you because you had done some good deed at some point in your life and you deserved a reward for it. God didn't save you because you're just really special and you deserved it. This salvation is not a reward for something that you have done. Salvation is all of God's grace. And so he saved you by his grace so that you might delight in it. So that you might say, have you seen what Jesus has done for me? 
Have you seen how God from before the world has saved me in a way that I can't explain? And I can't give you a reason for it. I can't tell you it was because of X, Y, or Z. There's no calculus to it. God saved me because He's good and He's gracious. And before the world began, He had me in mind. He purposed to save me. Next, notice the faithful service of praise in verses 7 through 12. Paul turns now from the work that God the Father has done in our salvation to the work that God the Son has done for us. In verse 7, he says that he has redeemed us. Now, the word redeem is the idea of purchasing something back. In particular, in, particular, in Paul's time and in, in Roman times, uh, a master would have a slave that he would pay off the debt for. And what would happen is most of the time in Paul's day, you didn't go into slavery because someone came and conquered your land, although that could happen. But oftentimes, slavery was a form of bankruptcy. You went into slavery until you paid off your debt. And so Paul, uh, many times a master would come into ownership of a slave because of the debt they owed. And that master would, because they fell in love with the slave and they wanted the slave to be a part of their family, the master would pay off their debt. They would, and they called that redemption. They would redeem the slave. And not only that, but then they would take that slave and they would adopt them into their family and make them a bona fide member of the master's household. In a similar way, we all are slaves to sin. We have a debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus Christ redeemed us and made us adopted children of the kingdom of God. Also, in verse 11, Paul says that Jesus has given us an inheritance through His work of redemption. When Paul says this, he has two things in mind. First of all, you remember the story of Israel in the Old Testament and particularly the book of Joshua and how after Joshua and the nation of Israel has come through the promised land and they've conquered the land of Canaan, they start to divide up the land of Canaan. In fact, if you're a good student of the Bible and you read through your Bible regularly, that's the point at which you don't need to be reading your Bible at night because it's easy to fall asleep as you read through all the names and who inherited what and you know all these different families and tribes and how they got a portion of the land. But when the nation of Israel came into the land and they inherited the land, every last one of the Israelites inherited the promised land. Everybody got a title. Everybody got a deed. It was like being on Oprah. You get a, a land and you get land and you get land. You know, And God ensured that even the lowest Israelite received an inheritance through the promised land. And in a similar way, we who are in Christ have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. There is a place for us in God's kingdom because of what Christ has done. But Paul also has in mind something else that happened in Israel. Israel didn't just receive an inheritance. They were an inheritance. They were God's inheritance. In fact, your translation might say that uh, not inheritance, 
We are his inheritance. It might say we are his heritage. Okay, and the idea there is that we or, or the Israelites were God's people. They were his possession, his inheritance. So Deuteronomy 7, 6 says that they are a holy nation, a royal people, a, 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 a people of his own possession. And now we, the church, are the heritage of God. We are a special possession that represents God to the world. First Peter chapter two, verse nine says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So why? Why is it that Jesus redeemed us? Paul gives us the answer at the end of verse 12. That we might be, notice this phrase again, to the praise of his glory. You see, Jesus has saved us that we might be a faithful witness, that we might live in faithful service to him. Just like Israel was rescued by God from the Pharaoh of Egypt so that they might be a worshiping nation, so we who are saved by Christ are to be a worshiping people. We are to remain and to abide and to be faithful in our worship to Christ. Finally, let's consider the future reality of praise in verses 13 through 14. Paul finally moves to the the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and his work in our salvation. Paul says that the Holy Spirit is a seal, or he uses also the word guarantee, of our salvation. Now in ancient times, and you've probably seen this on movies, if a king wanted to signify the importance of a person, if he wanted to signify that his authority rested on a person, or he wanted to signify a guarantee for that person that they would inherit something, he would give them some, some sort of sign to signify that. He would give them a ring or a seal or a cloak or something like that that set them apart and said, this is my person. This is my guy. Do what he says. Follow him. And it was also a reminder to the person that he represented the authority of the king, and he had a promise from the king that the king would be with him. Paul says that the Holy Spirit is a royal guarantee of our inheritance. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives reminds us that we are set apart by God. And it reminds us that God has a future home for us in heaven. So why does God promise that there will be a future home through His Holy Spirit. Notice again verse 14, where Paul answers, to the praise of His glory. Our future home will be a place of pure worship to the One who has purposed our salvation, the One who has redeemed us by His blood, and the One who has sealed us through His Spirit. Friend, is there a void in your life? Have the things of this world that you've chased after, the the money, the 
uh, fame, the power, the substances, have they proven to be terrible gods? Have you wondered what life is really all about and struggled to find any purpose or fulfillment? The reason you have a void, the reason you can't find fulfillment in this life and in these terrible gods is because you were made for so much more. You were made to delight in the good God who made you and who loves you and who purposed before the world ever began that He would save you from your sins. Won't you turn in faith to Christ today and trust in Him? Brothers and sisters, if we are to be a faithful church of the living God, then we must find our delight in the God who sets us apart the God who redeemed us, and the God who has sealed us. We can have the best music in the country, biggest choir, best performers, best, th- best thing ever. We can have all the, the, the performances that we want and do all of it uh, to the best quality that we can. And if we do not find our delight in God, it will be meaningless noise. We can have the deepest Bible studies. We can go way down deep into the Greek and the Hebrew and study things just as far and wide as you want to study them. And we can uh, study things just as as hard as you want to go. But if we do not find our delight in the Lord, it will be useless chatter. We can fill this church up and impress all the big wigs up at the SBC with how much we've grown and how many people we have on a, any given Sunday. But unless we delight in the Lord, it will be just another country club that has no spirit, no truth, no anything. Amen. Right. My hope for this church is that we might devote everything that we are to the worship of the one true God. And that we might find our delight in Him. In just a moment, we're going to have what we call an invitation. And Bill's going to go ahead and come up. Miss Glenda's going to come and, and uh, lead us in the music. And as they are coming, I want you to understand that as we respond to the gospel message today, maybe you are here and you have come to recognize that you need Christ. That you have worshiped other things and that you need to repent of that and turn to the one true God who is the delight of your heart. Today, I'll be down front in just a second as the song is being sung and and I invite you to come and to talk with me about how you can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and follow Him in baptism. Or maybe you just, you recognize that your delight has not been in the Lord. You're a believer, but you haven't been uh, worshiping Him as you should and you need to turn and re-devote your life to uh, delighting in Him. If you want to come and pray at the foot of the pulpit, you can, or you want to kneel and pray in your pew, you're welcome to do that. But if the Lord is calling you to respond to Him today, won't you do that as Bill leads us in our closing hymn? You would turn your head and